Today, as we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we also want to think about redemption, atonement, forgiveness, salvation, the provisions of God that we have in Christ. And to that end, I will preach from John chapter 3, and uh, you can see the verses there, and we'll also do some reviews and previews. So let's begin with prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Thank you for providing redemption for lost sinners. Thank you for coming into our world to reveal the truth and to bring us to yourself. We thank you, dear Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So in John 3, by the way, on um, February 12, 2023, during some applications, I covered some of these verses, and I'll refer back to that and cite a couple of them again. And so today we'll be in John 3. We'll start with verse 6. So if we could go to that slide, John 3, 6 through 8. And this was covered back in February, but I need to start there to get this uh, in order so we understand Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus. Here's what he says. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, when I mentioned this in the application on February 12th, I, I share with you the point is this. The Holy Spirit is not visible, God, the third person of the Trinity, not visible to the human eye. But his work is visible. And what's visible is God saving lost sinners and changing us and making dead sinners alive. When God makes a dead sinner alive, the effect can be seen. And sometimes more dramatically than in others, but it's always visible. There's fruit. There's a different life when God makes us alive. So here, uh, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, and we'll look at that also. I'm going to do some reviews. A Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, who had approached Jesus. And he said to him, it is necessary, he says to him, singular, it is necessary you, plural, be born from above. Again, I covered that. So Nicodemus is forced to face the true challenger. Jesus, creator, Messiah, God the Son, is confronting him. And this interesting dialogue will help us understand what it means to be a Christian, what it means to have your sins forgiven, what it means to escape the curse of sin, partially now as far as the penalty of sin, and totally in the future in regard to the presence of sin, and how it is that we can know that we know the Lord as Savior. So let's go now to some new material. It wasn't in that section I covered in 
uh, October 12th. John 3, 9 and 10, citing from the Lexham English Bible, Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? Now, the first time I read this uh, many decades ago, about 50 years ago, when I was a new Christian, someone said to read the Gospel of John, so I did. And then I studied it in Bible college as well. This seemed to be an enigma because this is difficult to understand, it seems. How would Nicodemus be expected to understand this? But that's not really the point. When you look at this word, I have it highlighted in red, answered. It's the same word both times. And it's apokrinomai, and it's used twice. And one of my really good sources points out that this is really what he deemed a social challenge dialogue. This isn't just a simple quest to learn something. There's a challenge. He's challenging him. Nicodemus is challenging Jesus. Jesus is challenging Nicodemus. And so Dr. Klink calls this a social challenge dialogue. These things, neuter in the Greek, refers to the need to be born from above. And when he asks, how can these things be, genomai, it's a word for being, literally, to come into being. How can these things come into being or come to exist? And um, this is the whole point. How can it be, how can it come into being that someone can be born from above and have new life and not perish and truly know God and be part of the family of God. Nicodemus claimed earlier to know that Jesus came from God as a teacher. We'll review that on the next slide. So the term teacher here is repeated. Earlier, Nicodemus talked about Jesus as the teacher. Here, Jesus, in this dialogue, in this debate, is bringing that back to Nicodemus. Are you not the teacher of Israel? You're a leader, you're a ruler, you're a Pharisee. You're to be the teacher of Israel. And yet, God incarnate in the person of Christ is right there telling him what he needs to know, and he would rather debate it or challenge it. And so he puts it back on him. Jesus does. You're the teacher of Israel. You don't know these things? What we see in the Gospel of John is what is necessary and often doesn't exist is a love for the truth. What is necessary is that when the opportunity to learn presents itself, that if we don't listen, Eric was talking about what listen means, Sunday school about Proverbs, we'll become hardened and end up fighting the truth. That's so very prevalent in many of the chapters of John, including chapter 8, where some leaders... Uh, 
supposedly believed, but they ended up in a fierce debate against Jesus because they didn't want him to tell them they needed to be set free. They, they didn't want to admit they even needed it. So we'll see where this goes. So Nicodemus is silenced. He can't answer it. Jesus is the true teacher. Nicodemus had said so. Here's the issue. Will we listen to the truth if we have the opportunity to do so? Let's ask ourselves that. If I could know the truth, and it clearly is the truth, would I want that? Would I believe it? And would I want God to change my life? If it's actually a real thing to be born from above and to not perish, is that what I admit I need and seek? Now let's do a little more review. John 3, 1 through 2. John 3, 1 through 2. Who is the teacher? In fact, if you want to turn to that John 3, 1 in your Bibles, I want to also look back at chapter 2, the last two verses, and we'll see there's an interplay of words there that are very important. John 2, 23, 24, and then we'll go to 3, 1, and 2. This has to do with man. Okay? A man. The man. What's wrong with him? Okay, John 2, 23, 24. Now when he, that is Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. Verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. Now that one, I looked up in the Greek, and it's, it's almost shocking when you see it in the Greek. Uh, the word men, it's actually singular there in the, in the end of verse 24. And it literally says, he knew what was in the man. Literally, he knew what was in, with a definite article, the man. The next verse says, there came a man. So it's not lost on the readers, if you're looking at this carefully. So he knew all men. He knows the man. It's literally singular. Anthropos, where we get our word anthropology. And here comes one who would epitomize what Jesus knows about man. The man. Now, there was a man. There's no chapter headings in the original Greek. There was a man. John wants us to see Nicodemus as the man who would epitomize what Jesus knows about. Do you believe that if Jesus is who he claims to be, he knows what's in human beings, anthropos, means human being, uh, in a generic sense, does he know what we need? That's the question. And what we want, and what we think we need, and what people say we need may not indeed be what we need. And that's the debate that's going on with Nicodemus. 
Now, there was a man of the Pharisees whose name was Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night, said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one is able to perform these signs that you are performing unless God were with him. So Nicodemus says, no one could do this unless God's with him. We know you're from God, a teacher. Now, we just read, they started a challenge. Jesus said, oh, you're the teacher of Israel. You don't know these things? And the first time I read it, I thought, well, who would really know this? This is difficult. That's the point. If you have the incarnate Son of God proving who he is there talking to you, learn from him. Let down the honor of being the teacher of Israel and the Pharisee and the ruler. Drop that one and recognize here is my opportunity to learn. But that's not what's happening at this point. So he knew what was in man. Now let's go back to where we were, John 3.11 now, from Lexham English Bible. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak what we know, and we testify about what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. There's the crux of the matter. If you've been reading John, John 1, the prologue, who Jesus is, his preexistence, his deity, the very creator. And there's the one who comes into our world, and there's a dialogue, there's a debate in a sense. Truly, truly, literally is amen, amen. That's where that word comes from, transliteration of the Greek. And we here is interesting because it's Jesus speaking. So why the we? We speak what we know. We testify what we've seen. And we'll find out that what Jesus is seeing is what he knows from being the preexistent God in heaven who knows heavenly things. Nicodemus does not. So why the we? And... uh, I'll make some comments about the Greek here. Um, If you look back, always remember the context and the narrative unity of the book. In John 1.11, it says he came to his own things. In other words, what's his, and his own people did not receive him, John 1.11. He came to his own, they didn't receive him. See, when Jesus comes to his own, his own already has a status quo. His own already has an honor-shame system. His own has a religious system and their own hope and claim that they can make things work out by making deals with the Roman Romans and so on. But here comes God the Son, the Creator, into their world, and they don't receive him. They don't receive him. I mentioned on the slide here, John 5.43, a preview. I'll, I'll cite that for you, John 5.43. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not 
accept me. Same word, lambano. You do not receive me. If another should come in his own name, you would accept that one. We don't like you, but maybe a messianic figure could come. We'd accept that. It's a horrible reflection on reality because the one who will ultimately be accepted, the Antichrist, according to 1 John. But this is the one who will offend everybody because he's not what they are looking for. So I have a statement on the slide that I wrote. Jesus speaks the truth with full authority as the pre-existent creator. And then I allude to the prologue of John. I have another great new commentary just out. Every time a better commentary comes out, sermon prep time gets longer and longer. Because i got to learn some more if it's available. This is uh, Dr. Clink, and he says this on John 3, 11. He says this, quote, This is a we of authoritative testimony. The intention is not to refer to any other persons along with the speaker, but to give added force to the self-reference. The plural says Clinkin testifies the authority expressed. Then he rightly says, only Jesus can speak this way. There is no other person, says Clink, that can speak as such. Even the testimony, testimonies of the disciples are all derivative whereas the testimony of Jesus is connected to his, excuse me, the testimony of Jesus is the very fountainhead, he says, of Christian revelation. And to that I say amen. What's really tragic, dear ones, are people that would say, well, we're better Christians than you because we're the red-letter Christians. You heard that one? What do they mean? Well, we just go by the parts of the red letters that we like. Go do good things, and that's all that's expected. But when the red letters talk about the danger of perishing, then they reject the red letters as well. But here is the problem with that. If Jesus is who he claims to be, who John says that he is, who Jesus says that he is, God incarnate, comes to his own, reveals himself to them, and does things that demonstrate his uniqueness, then is there ever going to be a greater opportunity to learn the truth? Where would you go if you can't learn the truth from Jesus, God incarnate, who cannot lie, who's speaking the truth, and you don't like it and you won't receive him, what are you going to get once you go somewhere else? Deception delusion, bondage, and lies that will lead to perishing. One more sentence from that citation. Thus, says Clink, the testimony message of Jesus is connected to his presence with God as a, as a person of God. Jesus is the, thus saith the Lord. Imagine if you were there talking to Jesus, we have his words, he's speaking as God who cannot lie. Do you think you're going to find something better somewhere else? No. 
Let's go to verses 12 and 13. <clears throat> Continue with the social challenge dialogue, as we're calling this. If I tell you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And notice the claim that Jesus makes. And no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, which we know is Messiah, Daniel 7. So Jesus uniquely preexisted in heaven. Jesus is not a person who made one of these claimed visits to heaven. It seems like there's more of them all the time. We were just talking about this as we recorded a podcast yesterday. Uh, I wrote an article in the 90s about people who claim to visit heaven. Well, little did I know that that was just a few people then. Now everybody, they're going to be important in some of these movements, has to have visited heaven. But they're wrong. They're false. They have nothing to tell us. Look at what Jesus said about himself. No one has ascended to, into heaven. The preexistent one, in which heaven is his place, his abode, came and spoke to us the truth about heaven. If we don't listen to him, why would we listen to the Kenneth Hagins of the world who said they went to heaven? Or the other claimants. There's so many. There's so many. I can't keep track of how many people went to heaven. In fact, if you didn't, you probably don't have much to say in some circles. But it's not true. Only Jesus is the priestess and eternal Lagos, the word used for him in John 1, 1 through 3, as well as Messiah, Son of Man. Moses didn't make that claim. Moses was on the mountain of Sinai. God came down. He was hid in the cleft of the rock. He couldn't stand to see the glory. Even the reflected glory meant he had to put a veil so because the people couldn't take it. And even Moses didn't claim that he went and visited heaven. He couldn't take the theophany on the earth without being veiled. That comes up in the New Testament. D.A. Carson says this, Jesus says, in effect, that entrance into the kingdom depends absolutely on new birth. If Nicodemus stumbles over this elementary point of entry, then what is the use of going on to explain more of the details of life in the kingdom? The heavenly things are then the splendors of the consummated kingdom. What it means to live under such a glorious, ineffable rule. There it is. There's our source, Jesus Christ, not religious mystics, seers, prophets, founders of religions, people claiming to speak for God but lie, people that have all kinds of new revelations but couldn't pass a basic theology test if they had to. They're theologically illiterate. But boy, they have the followers. I have a statement I put in my notes to read to you. 
If anyone does not believe the one who came from heaven and revealed himself on earth, that person will remain ignorant of heavenly realities. If we don't believe what's said by Christ and his apostles, we are setting ourselves up to be deceived by false prophets, false teachers, false revelators, false religious leaders. Will we listen to the one who speaks the truth? So the descendant from heaven has to do with his preexistence and his truth that he speaks about heavenly matters. He came from heaven. There's only one who came from heaven, Jesus Christ. It says in John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The one and only God, usually translated only begotten, the one who is in the bosom of the Father, that one has made him known. There's our one of the solas, Christ alone. Jesus uniquely speaks of heaven because he came from heaven and he's the sinless one, God the Son. Now let's go to verses 14 and 15. And here we find one of the more interesting analogies that you're going to run across. And it comes from Jesus himself interpreting, explaining a type from the Old Testament. John three fourteen and 15. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, thus it is necessary that the Son of Man be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Now we're learning some more. Certainly Nicodemus, the teacher, Pharisee, important person called ruler, knew very well of the incident in the wilderness of the curse, the murmuring, the bronze snake, and the way they found the freedom from dying under the curse in the plague. Now, you can jot this down. In fact, I, I have the verses there on the slide. I don't want to take your time to go through all of them. There's quite a few. But the point was when they were delivered from Egypt and came and went through the wilderness and were receiving God's provision, the manna from heaven, they began to complain. In fact, it says in John 6, they were murmuring, and John 6 was reminded us of the murmuring back in the wilderness. And uh, they spoke against God, and they spoke against Moses, Numbers 21.5. Let me just cite what they said. Here's the people who cried out to God in Egypt because they were enslaved, and they were tormented, and they wanted to be free, and God set them free. He provided the Moses to, to come and the blood on the lentils and so on, all of the, the doorposts. 
and the splitting of the Red Sea. Who saw more miracles? People are saying today, we need signs and wonders. We need a, a new signs and wonders movement. And if there's enough of them, people will have faith. These people saw more signs and wonders than you're going to see at some meeting. I guarantee it. Every single day they saw miracles. The manna. They knew. They, they'd been through the splitting of the Red Sea, the fire, pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, miracles galore. And what did it lead to? They all had great faith. No, they complained. Here's what they said, quoting them. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. Yikes. Telling God, I loathe what you have provided. You've got to study John if you haven't yet. Beautiful book. This is a preview of John 6. They start murmuring. Jesus multiplies the bread. They murmur. Ganguzo. Murmur, murmur, murmur. Give us bread. Moses gave us bread. They forgot that they murmured. Their ancestors did. Moses gave us bread. What do you have? My flesh for the life of the world. Dear ones, God determines how he provides for our salvation, our sustenance, and our eternal hope. God decides that, not religious consumers. And the knowing of what's in man, as I said earlier, is still true. The fall is true. The curse of sin is true. The hardness of heart is true. The desire to tell God what he has to do so we'd be willing to go to him. Still true. It will only lead to death and the curse. So God could have wiped him out, but he had made a promise to Abram. So he provided a bronze snake. Then Moses put it on a pole and put it up. And it says, verse 9, Numbers 21, And Moses made a bronze serpent, literally snake here, and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Here, in this section, Jesus shows that he is the one who will be lifted up. It is necessary that the Son of Man be lifted up. Don't allow pop Christian religion to deceive you. Because people don't even get the point of the type or the analogy. Lifted up doesn't mean say nice things about Jesus. Lifted up means to die on the cross, to bear the curse. The snake is a cursed creature, the serpent, as we know from Genesis. And so here already Nicodemus is challenging 
I have to go back in a mother's womb. How that's going to happen? And what are you talking about? This doesn't make sense. And now it gets even worse. Now what? You are going to be like a snake? Cursed? Lifted up? Why would we believe that? In fact, it was so bad, the apostasy in the Old Testament, that they took the brown snake with them and were worshiping. And under Hezekiah, he crushed the snake and got rid of it because they wanted to worship the snake, thinking that would do them some good. And rather than knowing that it's Yahweh who provides, Yahweh who blesses, Yahweh who gives away of, of life and salvation. So in a tragic irony, and that's found, by the way, in 2 Kings 18.4, the Israelites eventually worshiped the brown snake. People, like at Sinai, they made the golden calf. People want to create a God they can control, a God they can shape, God they can get rid of if they don't like it. That's idolatry. It's necessary that the Messiah, Son of Man, be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him, so looking at the brown snake saved them from physical death, believing that Jesus was lifted up on the cross to die for sins is how we have eternal life. The brown serpent on a pole was God's remedy for the curse due to murmuring, and in the applications today, I'm going to look at other uses of lifted up in the Gospel of John. This is amazing. This is Jesus here telling us the significance of the serpent. Because of the sin that happened in Genesis, the whole human race, Nicodemus included, is cursed. Every human being comes into this world cursed and alienated from God and lost. Let's go to John three sixteen. Here's the verse that people know because they saw it at a football game. Do they know what it means? Well, you see it out there. By the way, let me just do a little literary analysis the best evidence is verse 15 was the end of the dialogue or challenge with Nicodemus. 16 on is John telling us the truth about the incarnation, the meaning of it. So this is John speaking here, explaining the prologue of John. For in this way, I'm, I'm citing the LEB because... Sometimes we become familiar with things by using the same translation over and over. This, I think, will get us to think about what's being said. John 3.16. For in this way, or literally it could be thusly, for in this way God loved the world, so that he gave his one and only Son in order that everyone who believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. The options are 
perish or to believe in the only begotten, the unique one, the only one of his kind, the only one who preexisted as the creator in heaven and came to earth incarnate and spoke about heavenly things, the only one who could fulfill the role of breaking the curse by being lifted up because he did not deserve the curse because he's sinless, but he bore it on our behalf. So this is the manner, thusly, that God demonstrated love for the world. And it's almost shocking if you look at the word for world cosmos, and how it's used elsewhere by John. One of the scholars I studied pointed out that this is the one place where it says God loves the cosmos, the, the world in that sense. Generally, it's either just the creation, but most often in John, it's the rebellious system. The whole rebellious system of humans in rebellion against God. And if you look at that ubiquitous rebellion, all that's in the world, John says in 1 John, is not from God. The world hates the truth. But here it says God loved the cosmos, the world, in this manner. I have a statement I put on my notes about this. This powerful statement shows the motivation for what has been stated before about the coming of the eternal Lagos into the world, which is filled with wickedness and sin. Despite the hatred, despite the rebellion, despite the sin, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, all that's in the world, God loved the world. Provided totally at his own dishonor, bearing the curse on the cross, a means of salvation for those who do not deserve it, but hate him. Dr. Klink says, what made, God, what made God embrace human weakness and suffering? Question. What made God endure mockery and shame? The answer is his love for the world. The very ones, he says, for whom he was enduring the suffering and shame. When the wilderness wanderers were disgusted with God and his provision, would God have been unjust if he just wiped them all out? Threatened to do so at one time. Moses interceded. No, he wouldn't be unjust. But God isn't merely just, he's also loving. And God, in his love, provides a means of, of salvation, of rescue from being under this curse that means death. And he sent the Son. He bore the curse of sin to bring salvation to those who believe. I wanted to cite Dr. D.A. Carson. Jews were familiar with the truth that God loved the children of Israel. Here, God's love is not restricted by race. Even so, God's love, says Carson, is to be admired, not because the world is so big and includes so many people, 
because the world is so bad that it is the customary that is the customary connotation of cosmos. The world is so wicked that John that John elsewhere forbids Christians to love it or anything in it. That's the first job. Do not love the world. But God loved the world. There is no contradiction between this prohibition, says Carson, and the fact that God does love it. Christians are not to love the world, he says, with the selfish love of participation. God loves the world with a selfless, costly love of redemption. We love the world because we'd like to participate in their sin. God forbid. God loves the world because there are those he will redeem out of it. Here's different. It's not a contradiction. It's a possibility that we can learn. Don't be hardened like Nicodemus or the people that debated Jesus in John 8. But look at this as an opportunity to hear from the mouth of God himself how and why we can turn to him to be free from the curse and to not perish. The word perish, apolumi, doesn't mean having a less happy life than somebody else. Perish doesn't mean being unhappy. Perish doesn't mean, well, I didn't reach my full potential. Perish means to come under the wrath of God in future judgment. And that is what he comes to rescue us from. Some applications. Just two, Jesus' claims are either outlandish impossibilities or utterly profound truth. Number two, Jesus fulfilled the role of the snake Moses lifted up in a way no one could have envisioned. How could a snake on a pole be a type of Christ? Well, let's see if we can find some answers to these in the text of John. Number one, is this what we believe? Is it reasonable? Is it believable? Do, do the facts of everything that's happened point to this? And I say yes. John 1, 10 through 12. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to his own things, reflecting the neuter in the Greek, and his own people did not receive him. But as many as received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave to them authority to become children of God. Here's one thing that we can learn right on the surface of this. Being a human being isn't what makes you a child of God. The world, in its rebellion against God, is intrinsically universalist. We're all children of God. Well, you could say everyone's existence is due to the fact that God created. We're all descendants from Adam. That would be a good way to look at it. 
we all descended from the same parents, Adam and Eve. And after that, after the fall, those who came and were born, those who were born of Adam and Eve, were in their likeness has fallen. I believe in the fall. I believe we're born into the world, alienated from God. I believe that every human being, wherever they may, may be, whatever race or tribe, anywhere in the world, is born lost and needs a savior. Connotation of the world. And to become children of God, we need to believe in Jesus Christ, the only begotten, the unique one, the only one of his kind. And that is the essence of our need. And I think we can point that out. This is the claim that's made. I would also say this. I realize that Christendom is full of cathedrals and temples and big things and organizations, many of which totally deny what we're talking about here. They don't believe in the fall. They don't believe in redemption. They don't believe that there's a hell to avoid. They don't believe that you need salvation. And the red letters mean be a good person or whatever. I understand that. But it doesn't change reality. Christianity is about redemption and atonement. It's about forgiveness of sins. It's about eternal life. It's about a relationship with God, not trying to be a nice person and it's all going to work out. Because if you don't believe that perishing is possible, then you won't believe the gospel. And that's never changed. Now let's look at the lifted up part. It's interesting. You hear... People say, well, let's lift up Jesus. Well, I suppose what we need is to speak about who he is. That's fine. But the phrase lift up doesn't mean exactly that. It means the crucifixion. John eight twenty eight. Then Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man... Then you will recognize that I am. He is not in the Greek. Then you will recognize that I am he, and I do nothing for myself. But just as the Father taught me, I say these things. When you lift up the Son of Man. So we already know what lift up means because it was defined earlier in John as the snake put on the pole in the wilderness, and those who looked to him were saved from death. And so Jesus takes on the role of the cursed snake, bearing the curse of sin, becoming a curse for us that we might inherit the blessing of God, tasting death so we might have forgiveness of sins and eternal life, enduring the mockery, the shame. This was a torturous, shameful death on a cross. He willingly accepted that, and he did so out of love for those who hated him. I am, by the way, comes up a lot in John. He said to the critics in John 8, 
before Abraham existed, I am. He claimed to be the very great I am, Yahweh, who appeared to Moses at the burning bush. And then John 12, 32. And I, when I am lifted from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So uh, this is the way that God would bring salvation to wicked sinners who hated him. Again, uh, the commentary by Clink says this, by these words, Jesus declares the heart, he says, of the Christian message. The judge has decided to receive upon himself the guilt of the defendant. That struck me. I had to put it in the sermon. The judge, he's the judge. John 12, 48. If anyone doesn't accept my word, there's one that will judge him in the last days, the words I've spoken to him. The judge decided to receive upon himself the guilt of the defendant. The sinful Adamic race who ended up in that condition because our ancestors, Adam and Eve, listened to the serpent and believed the lie and believed that they could be like God, that they wouldn't die, that it would be good for food, delight to the eyes, desirable to make one wise, rebel against God, plunge the whole Adamic race into alienation from God. But here the judge takes the guilt of the defendant. Substitutionary atonement. The word draw, elkuo, elkuo, this one confuses people because of misunderstanding. When I'm lifted from the earth, meaning up on the cross, I will draw people to myself. Here's the misunderstanding. People think that that means uh, appear attractive to everyone. But if you read the accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus, this did not seem attractive to anyone. This was hideous. There was mocking, derision, scorn. Ridicule. Save yourself. If you're, the, if you're who you claim to be, save yourself. Come off the cross. They won't believe you. This is the only reason it may seem desirable is we have 2,000 years of Christendom making gold crosses and cathedrals and massive pipe organs. And it seems nice. Colored glass windows. We don't get it. Jesus being the brazen, bronze snake on a pole is not attractive. It's a sign of the curse, the serpent. But he, the sinless one, bore the sin so that those who believe on him would find forgiveness, release from sin. It's not attractive to fallen humans unless you change the meaning and then you have nothing. Draw, the word is used, um, let me see here, one, two, three, 
Six times in the New Testament, five of them in John. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So it's not universalists. It's those who actually believe. John 12, 32, I mentioned, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Of course, everybody doesn't come, so it means all who do come. John 18, 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew, same word, and struck the high priest's servant, cut off his ear, drew the sword. John 21, 6, and he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And so they cast it, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the quantity of fish. And then John 21, 11, so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of fish. 153 of them. That's a good catch. How many of you know fishermen count their catch? I know, I'm one. We caught how? <laughs> so, and then the one other time it's found when it's not in John, Acts 16, 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged him into the marketplace before the rulers. So therefore, it's not accurate to say attract. It's accurate to say bring to salvation those who would look upon Christ as the one who claims are true. Messiah, creator, sinless one, son of man, son of God, only begotten of God, full of grace and truth, who bore the sin, the judge becomes a defendant, he takes that, and if we look on that and believe him, that brings us, drags us out of the marketplace of sin, wickedness, curse, and death, and brings us to hope and life and joy and eternal life, and we will know more heavenly things in the future because there'll be our faith will become sight. And I pray that that would be true even today for some for the very first time. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. One last slide. And this is Jesus praying. John, in John 17, lets us in on Jesus praying. And we have a here a revelation of his purpose. Today's Communion Sunday. We want to think about what he's done for us. John 17, 1b through 3, again from the Lexham English Bible. Lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, this is Jesus, our high priest, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son in order that your Son may glorify you. Wow. Glorify your Son in order that your Son may glorify you. Just as you have given him authority over all flesh, in order that he, the Son, would give eternal life to them, everyone whom you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they who know you, the only true God, that, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Are you believing in him and trusting in him? 
Is he who he claimed to be? I believe that he is. Today, believe on him and be saved. And these ones, Jesus said he would give eternal life to them, the ones that the Father gave the Son. We don't know who they are. We preach the gospel to everyone. The ones who believe are the ones who are drawn and are seeing the breaking of the curse of sin and the gift of eternal life. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to look into these glorious things that angels desire to see, things revealed from heaven through your Son. May we humbly believe what you've said and trust in you. Thank you for showing kindness to us undeserving sinners. Thank you for your grace and mercy. We do want to bring glory to you by trusting you alone. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.